Hey there. Um, I just wanted to start by saying uh, that I received some great messages congratulating me on completing RPG A Day Month and some really nice messages from people who really enjoyed the Season 1 finale. Liren of Updates from the Middle of Nowhere, Evil Jeff of Minions and Musings, Joe Richter of Hindsightless and Wheel of Woe fame, Shandy Andy of Unguarded Treasure, brackets B52, and also from Jason, who kindly pointed out that Anchorites Appreciate Arneson Month isn't until October, so thank you for that. Also, I'm eagerly anticipating the first episode of your new podcast, Jason. Can't wait to hear that. So, yeah, I'd really, really appreciate those messages, guys. Thank you very much. But there was one message in particular that I wanted to address. Mr. Free For All, Spike Pit here. And listen, just listen to your last episode. And uh, as much as I enjoy your podcast, I've grown a little bit suspicious that some of the callers are not actually bona fide callers. I think there's a little bit of shenanigans going on at your end there. So I've had a word with Pete from Dragons Are Real, and he's got a few contacts, and they've been able to run a sample of a certain spammer through some analysis. She was talking about underrepresentation of females, and yes... My suspicions were confirmed that was not actually a woman calling in and it is my uh, firm belief that you in fact made her up and that was a bogus call. Um, Now, Colin, I have to say I'm not sure that Spamela is going to be very pleased to hear that you believe she is somehow... Fictitious. Um, although I agree with you, there is something strange going on there because that message was actually phoned in to an episode of a cult orifice outrage. So I've got no idea how it managed to crop up in the best of my podcast. So, um, yeah, Spamela, if you're out there, Please don't take Colin's accusations to heart. I'm sure he means well. Please get in touch because I'd really like to get to the bottom of this. Strange days indeed. Plinkety plink. Plink, 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 plink. Begin after eight taps. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. He was slinging pawns at a B&B when he had an epiphany. And they complained about time too, about not playing the NDE. It was free for all, and I heard him say, he bought my borderlands. But just sit back and let Spencer do his trick, cause you're incapable,
Thank you, TJ Drennan. Welcome to Keep Off the Borderlands, Season 2, Episode 1. Or if you prefer, Episode 14. Or if you want to count all the bonus episodes, including RPG A Day, Episode 50. But because I couldn't make up my mind, you know, which episodes count and which episodes don't, welcome to episode one, season two, Keep Off the Borderlands. Now, what I am going to do is I'm going to try and keep the episodes around the sort of 20 minute mark, drop the idea of bonus episodes because why, and just embrace the fact that I'm not always going to be talking about gaming. That's just the nature of the podcast. So, let's get on with it, shall we? All right, Spencer, heard you weighing in on the kind of demi-human debate that's been rolling along on Deep Percentile, and you mentioned you like those human-focused campaigns you were talking about in response to a call-in where I was talking about giving demi-humans and stuff like that the boot. I'm actually just as happy to give them the boot along with humans and all the tired old tropes, and encourage people to do something a little bit different with their fantasy, make their fantasy more fantastic. Something it was Ray Otis I was listening to today from Plundergrounds, he was talking about the very same thing. I've got no problem with it at all. I'm just interested what you think about campaigns without humans. Take care, mate. Keep up the good work. Hey Colin, always nice to see a message from you. Um, kicking out the humans. Um, now that's interesting you should say that, because quite some while ago I was toying with the idea of a post-human setting. Basically, we'd all died out. Nature had reclaimed the earth, and with that new um, species had evolved to a point where they'd taken our place. Several factions kind of trying to establish themselves as the kind of the top dogs, as it were. Um, And, uh, yeah, I think I might explore that in my next episode. So uh, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, I think that the challenge comes, Spencer, from when you get rid of the humans, of course, you're actually, in reality, playing a game with a bunch of humans sitting at the table. So the difficulty, I think, is trying to actually play a different race, really putting yourself in the shoes of a race or a species that that really you, you haven't got the foggiest clue about. that. That's the difficult thing, I think, and um, it's probably what presents the stumbling block or what puts people off of actually going down that road. You don't want to sort of play an RPG with a load of mice and then just play them as humans. Hmm. Yes, I can certainly see that being a problem. 
um, especially if you're all playing the same species, what's going to distinguish a bunch of humans pretending that they're mice um, from, you know, them just playing a bunch of humans, maybe with a few cheese jokes thrown in, I don't know. But um, uh, I, I guess the, the setting I was thinking of is that you are from different species, you know, you're a collection of different animals, as it were. Uh, but then you've got the the issue of how to make those distinctive in a way that doesn't just make them seem like reskinned versions of your traditional fantasy races. I don't know. Duck season. Hobbit season. Duck season. Hobbit season. Hobbit season. I'd say it's duck season and I say fire. So this whole conversation that's been going on over Anchor about hobbits and ducklings, ducklings, halflings and ducks and ducklings, I guess. <laughs> We're gonna... And my thoughts about a human-centric setting, which brought to mind some ideas for a setting that I had quite some time ago that I was toying around with that was post-human and didn't use traditional races. Uh, well, let me explain. Shortly after discovering the PIP system, I decided to hack it, which is uh, what I'm like, basically. I'm just going to read off the notes I made quite some time ago. I haven't looked at these in a while, but uh, let's see what I wrote. After the rain. The time of man has passed, no doubt a victim of his own success. This was a long time ago, and there's nobody around who really knows or cares what happened. The point is that we're done. Get over it. But what of the planet, I hear you ask? The planet has gone to the dogs, quite literally, well, almost. As Aristotle once said, nature abhors a vacuum, and evolution has put forward several candidates to apply for the now vacant position of paragon of animals. What follows is a list of our young hopefuls. The Bursian, mountain-dwelling beastmen, bear-like, ram-horned, cloven-hoofed, shaggy coats, like a minotaur got it on with a grizzly, imposing, seven to eight feet tall, hardy, stoic, stubborn, lazy. The Viver, woodkin, foxy, squirrely, lemur-type things, tree-lovers, but not in a hippie way. Around four to five feet in height. Great climbers. Nimble, daring, opportunistic, impulsive, proud, inspiring in the rabble-rousing sense. The Felvics. At home in both rural and urban settings, but not the most sociable bunch. They like their independence, but can be great allies if they let anyone get close enough. Lone hunters, Stealthy, mysterious, agile, very sharp claws, suspicious of others, 
even their own kind, licentious, five to six feet tall, okay, they're basically cat people, there, I said it, happy now, <laughs> the Silanthus, think Spartan dogs, no, that's not some ancient Greek insult, loyal and protective, organised, militaristic, brave, perceptive, patient, wise, powerful, guarded, but somewhat bloodthirsty, five to seven feet tall, the Glyre, hinterfolk, hedge-dwelling agricultural types who generally keep themselves to themselves when they aren't selling their wares on the edge of town, resemble a variety of different critters, can be furry, spiky, scaly or hairless, timid, inquisitive, measured, ingenious, calculating, fleet-footed, elusive, resourceful, uneasy. The Amnid, weasel, lizard, bird type creatures, scholastic, diplomatic, social, manipulative, persuasive, indulgent, cunning, tactical, sycophantic, exploitative, self-serving. There we go. I think the problem there is, I, I didn't want to just reskin fantasy races but as you can see, it's very difficult for them not to resemble traditional tropes. I think that's just, you know, the nature of the thing. It's very difficult to get away from that. You might say, well, why try? And I'm not sure I have a satisfying answer to that. But um, I certainly enjoyed doing that. Something that's remained on my mind, because as I read through that, I instantly saw the images of each creature that I was describing quite vividly and uh, I was just thinking about where that idea sort of came from I do have vague memories of a comic strip in 2000 AD it was called Meltdown Man and it was essentially it's kind of a cross between Planet of the Apes and the island of Dr Moreau um, a guy is flung into the future. There are still humans. They're kind of quite fascistic and they have bred these human-animal hybrids who they're using as slaves. And, and these, the, these slaves are kind of in the process of revolting. Yeah, and it's just very, it was something that really captured my imagination, although I remember very little about the actual story itself. Um, but there were certain there were certain characters in that, you know, the images of those characters really stuck with me. Yeah, so I think that's where the inspiration for that came from. I think you can also, it'd be fair to say, there's a lot of Dark Crystal going on in there too. The, the political sort of scholastic types being very like the Skeksis. But then... You could probably see all kinds of things in there, certainly you know, Lord of the Rings and uh, Wind in the Willows, um, that kind of stuff. Oh, welcome to Controversy Corner. It seems Monty Cook has just released a book called 
Consent in gaming. Now, I don't know. To me, my first thoughts are, where is this going to end? This hysteria around the possibility of being offended. I don't know. I get the idea of using X cards at gaming conventions. But to release a book advising you that... I don't know. I've not read the book. So <laughs> I can't really comment, to be honest. I don't even know what it's about. Oh, dear. Well, maybe scrub this section then. I'm, I'm, I'm backing out of Controversy Corner. Bye now. <laughs> So, I've just finished watching The Dark Crystal. Mmm. And uh, I've got to say, it is, it is a work of art. Just the world building going on there is fantastic. I don't think it has the problem of, uh, say, something like the Star Wars prequels, which were giving you backstory that you didn't need and was unengaging uh, essentially because you you look at the the original dark crystal film and the beginning of it is front loaded with voiceover setting the scene trying to create that world before we meet the protagonist just in the process of doing that it glosses over a lot of potential details you know so i think the idea of doing a prequel I felt worked very well because you're not familiar with the world of the Gelfling. So, if anything, uh, the overwhelming sense of the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance is this sense of doom hanging over it, which is interesting. What they've done here is they've made some central characters extremely engaging, I felt. And that's certainly a big improvement on the original film. After watching this series, I decided it almost sets things up for what you see in the film. Uh, so I, I watched a bit of the film after completing the series. The main thing that really struck me is that the protagonist in the movie is a real non-entity. He's essentially uh, he's a very... I'd say two-dimensional character at best and he's there to lead us through this fantasy world so he's a bit of a kind of an empty vessel for the purposes of being inhabited by the viewer all these wondrous things in this world are as much a surprise to him as they are to you as the viewer and you can see why they do that but Yes, he's a very bland protagonist. Something that I don't think the series suffers from uh, because you're introduced to a whole host of characters and they're all very much part of the world that you're seeing. They're invested in that world in a way that the, the protagonist of the original film isn't. What else was I going to say? Just the production values of this thing are incredible. The fact that they used such restraint 
when it came to CGI. I think it was done very well indeed. Uh, the actual characterization, the puppetry is phenomenal. The fact that you can get so so moved by the performance of a puppet. Any criticisms of the series? The whole season is structured much like a movie. And because of that, I feel certainly in the second half, there does seem to be a bit of padding to kind of slow the proceedings down. Some of that is done really nicely. I think it's intentionally frustrating as well because that's what a character's going through, you know, um, at points uh, being waylaid as they are. I did think the final, don't want to spoil it at all, a few occasions where I felt things didn't work, but that's because I'm actively looking for issues. There were moments when I felt, mm, why are these characters putting themselves in this position? Just because it's a requirement of the story to have certain people in certain situations at certain times. But on the whole, I think it is a real great fantasy. I mean, if I was going to uh, compare this to anything, you know, past Lord of the Rings, I would probably say it had more in common with Avatar, except it's got engaging characters and an interesting story. And without being plagued by the whole white saviour issue, I did feel that I probably benefited from not having seen the movie for a long time. Although, having said that, the characters that featured in that movie that appear in this series are so note-perfect to the way they've been rendered. The, the voicing, I mean, Simon Pegg does an incredible job with the Chamberlain. Very impressive. Algra, it sounds like they've got the same person doing the voice for Algra as they did in the movie. Just really well done, very impressive. I'm not sure that I would want to see a second season focus on this story because the events that need to happen between now and the movie are not going <sighs> to... I, I Let's say it's going to be pretty doom-laden. And, and and that does bring another thing. I mean, you definitely not be able to say that no puppets were harmed in the making of this program, because there is a lot of puppet abuse, and it it is really quite disturbing at times. Um, that's all I have to say about that. Well, there we go. Season 1, Episode 2, In the Bag. You've been listening to Keep Off the Borderlands, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks again for the call-ins. If you want to leave me a message, click the link in the description, or you can always contact me at spencer.freethrall at gmail.com. And remember, when things get dicey, just roll with it. Schmoove. (laughs) 
next time on Keep Off the Borderlands. I've got an idea. What about Oliver Postgate? Seemingly you're a fan. Could you do a kind of an Oliver Postgate episode on uh, Keep Off the Borderlands? Man, I'm sure you could wangle in some sort of RPG theme into that and, you know, maybe some tenuous link with nostalgia. I don't know, but listen, I hope you're well, man. Take care. Catch you later.